Yeah, it's been a couple of weeks now since the since the results of the primary election came in, mm-hmm. and uh, it did it, it it did take me a week just to just for the dust to settle, yeah. uh, and then the 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 last week has been kind of regaining my re- rejoining my old life already in progress. Um, but but I'm I'm there now. I you know hearing you talk about it, it, it seemed like it was um, it was it was almost this kind of grand experiment and this this idea that you could just run a run run and win on an honest campaign. Yeah, it, you know I didn't want it to be obviously when I first started um, campaigning, a lot of people kind of asked me whether or not I was doing it as an art project or as a as a as a goof even um, and I didn't want it to be and I didn't want to I didn't I didn't believe it was a, it was it would be honest to run for office as a like life experience you know I was legitimately running for office as a as a uh, as an attempt to join the political world and um now, having lost the primary election and being, it's it's astonishing that the results come in and if you do not win, you are immediately a civilian again. Uh, there's no processing that happens. That nobody says um, you have to come in tomorrow to get your identity card clipped or something. It's just like you walk out of the, in my case, yeah. the bar where we were having our uh, election night party, and you're just like, well, I guess tomorrow I. You know, we'll wake up and I won't have anything to do. I'm going to go from having 18 hours a day of work to do to having zero hours of work to do. Uh, but I now now that it's passed, I mean, there's really nothing I can do but think of it as a whole, as a sort of life experience and a life, not experiment, but a, a uh, it's. It's absolutely going to inform everything I do from now on, having done it, and um, it, it changed my understanding uh, quite a bit. But but it, I didn't set out to do it as a as a as a joke or even as a like lark. It was it was the intention was serious. You were committed to the point that there, you didn't really have a plan B in place in case the thing didn't work out. You were assuming that it was going to work out. Yeah, and that was that was that was incredibly naive. And everything about my run was naive. And when I when I first started doing it, and people in the political class would challenge me and say, "This is incredibly naive," I resented it and felt like. Um, I felt that that was a, that was very cynical on their part uh, because I believed, I guess, in the principle that normal people should run for office and and um, politics should be accessible to everybody and we should all of us take that responsibility in hand at a certain point in our lives and when you've arrived at a at a place in your life where where you you can run for office that that more of us should and that that alone would reform the political process um, and what I what I didn't understand is how how 
much like an iceberg, the political process is, and the, the visible portion is a small percentage of the of all the activity and all the vested groups and all the and all the interests that that motivate and energize the the process so i was looking at what i could see and saying more people should get involved why why does this process uh, seem to only only appeal to this certain strange type of person and why does it seem so dishonest to the rest of us and why is it why is it so uh intractable and then once i jumped in that whole period of six months or so was just uh, uncovering uh, for myself every day an understanding of how much more involved that community is you know i mean i was the last person in my race to declare the other three candidates had all declared they were running by january 1st but really had been running for a year beforehand in the quiet um and by running i mean forging alliances making building relationships securing support from the thousands of interested parties and I didn't declare until the middle of April. And from where I stood, the election had barely begun. There was no, the newspapers weren't covering it yet. Nobody in the town was even aware of it. And so I felt like, sure, of course you throw your hat in and run for office and let's, get, let's put a campaign together and ramp it up. But I was, I was, joining, an, I was joining the Indianapolis 500 at mile 300. Um, because everybody else already had that stuff, not just the, their own campaigns going, but they already knew all the people they were going to be meeting, or they met. They knew a lot of them and knew who they were and knew what their expectations were. And I spent that whole period every day walking through, walking through a door into a conference room full of people sitting around a table, and I didn't know who they were or what they wanted from me, and I was like powered by a feeling that well all you have to do is be honest and sincere and um, and that will that will produce good results what's what's really interesting to me is that you know um, these these processes are so in place on every level you know you're not you're not talking about a, a you know run for the president or senate or even congress this is city council but yeah. the same processes that are in place on a on a national level are in place on a city level it sounds like well it's they're the same they really are this not just the same uh not just the same entities but the same people mm. because the democratic party Operatives, or the de the way the Democratic and Republican parties work, is that they're they're fundamentally locally based organizations at, at at one level. Like the entire pyramid is based on the independent legislative districts, and this district and that district. I mean, Seattle has a half a dozen legislative districts, and each one of those districts has a precinct and a and executive board and the people that are members of those groups 
you know, all you have to do to be a member is pay your dues and show up at the meetings. Um, join the Democratic Party, pay your dues, which are nominal, and then start attending the Democratic Party meetings in your neighborhood, literally your neighborhood. And then if you really like it, and if you like uh, Robert's Rules of Order and, and that kind of procedural uh, um, meeting, and pe you get to know the people in your meeting, and then you can run for precinct committee officer, the PCO, and then you are chairing the meeting, and there's a sergeant at arms, and you know, it's, 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 um, it's all that, it's all that 18th century community mm. stuff, but those people ultimately um, interview all the candidates for public office, and so if you want to run for public office, a lot of the people that end up running for public office come from those meetings. They're, they're members of those groups. They get to know those people. They watch the candidates come through, and then they decide they're going to run. I mean, it's a kind of farm team. And then those legislative groups or those district groups send their people up the chain, and then you're talking about a county Democratic Party and a statewide Democratic Party, and the National Party is just a, an aggregate of all these tiny little neighborhood groups. Was did you, did you get the feeling of being sort of like a you know, like a foreign body attacked by all these antibodies that you were this this outsider and and because you were not part of the process that people didn't want you involved in the process? Well, what was crazy was because I come from the civilian world, mm -hmm. um, I assumed, uh, because everybody I have ever talked to sort of agrees that, wow, wouldn't it be great if somebody from outside the process ran for office? Uh, you know, isn't it cool to think that even, even when a, when a, you know, a lightweight like Jesse Ventura or, or, Arnold Schwarzenegger runs for office and wins, we're all like, oh, well, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of dumb, but, but it's also kind of great. <laughs> and, um, and when, you know, so typically the outsiders that run for office all come from business backgrounds or military backgrounds. They're not really outsiders. They're, they are company people, but, but, um, I mean, the, the, oldest trope in American politics or in politics anywhere. Everybody's an outsider. They all call themselves outsiders. But wouldn't it be great if, a, if a, in, in my case, I thought, wouldn't it be great if an artist ran for public office? And I was, talk about naive, I waltzed into the first one of these Democratic Party meetings that I'd ever been to and stood up on the dais and said, wouldn't it be great if an artist ran for public office? Well, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. And I looked out at a room full of people, and not a single one of them thought it was great that an artist was running for public office. It wasn't a thing that had occurred to them <laughs> to want. And when they thought about it for a few seconds, they realized they or they they did not want it. You know, they thought that running for public office was a thing that you did after you had spent a long time working as an operative in the Democratic Party. And how could you possibly know the ins and outs and all the important business? So. What, was, what was the sense of that you were kind of cutting the line there? Cutting, I'm sure there were some people that felt like I was cutting the line. I'm sure there were a lot of people that thought that I was a, a frivolous, lightweighted uh, art person who mm -hmm. 
didn't have the serious background or or but, sort of a single policy candidate, you know, single issue candidate. Well, no, unfor- uh, uh, quite the opposite. They all want single issue mm. candidates. Every candidate that is successful is a single issue candidate. Mm-hmm. And what I wasn't was a single issue candidate. Mm-hmm. I was a I wanted to talk about everything and refused to uh refused to coalesce my platform down into, you know, a few soundbitey kind of platforms. And that too was regarded as naive because day after day I would walk into these places and be given a minute to speak or two minutes to speak. And I was thinking about the city in a in a holistic fashion and wanted to talk about it in in a in broad not broad strokes but like you cannot resolve the housing crisis without also addressing the transportation crisis because the two things are linked. And if you build density in one part of the city, but you don't build connective transportation, then you're, you just created, you, that's how gridlock is created. Or, you know, you, you're, you, that housing isn't actually affordable because the people that can afford to live there can't afford to travel. Um, so all of those issues have to be addressed systemically, but that doesn't play in a minute. How many meetings do you wait for before you start talking about the gondolas? Well, and that's the other thing. I mean, I was discouraged by my uh, by my campaign team and by all my in- immediate initial experience. Mm-hmm. Discouraged from talking not just about gondolas, but about really systemic issues at, at all. I mean, gondolas were kind of a humorous way of addressing the fact that it's very hard to move around Seattle because it's a hilly mm-hmm. uh it's a hilly region and none of our transportation solutions really address the fact that it's Seattle's built on nine hills. Um, and so I was like, there are cities around the world that use gondolas as public transportation and we should consider it. And my own friends and advisors were like, ah, ixnay on the gondola gay. <laughs> and I, and I, and I was willing to not talk about that stuff immediately, but the, but the problem of not being able to talk about, housing and transportation and density and transportation as linked to ideas. That was something that I couldn't abide. Um, but I was, I had a minute to argue with somebody who was saying the solution is rent control. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, the rent control is illegal. You might as well say, you might as well ask a Seattle city council candidate whether they support an independent Palestine. Uh, they they're, they're definitely going to have an opinion on it, but it has no bearing on whether on, on how to run the the city of Seattle, and asking us. But but this season, rent control was the um, was the policy du jour, and so every every meeting I went to, somebody asked, somebody gave me a minute to answer the question: Was I in favor of rent control? And you know, it, I need more than a minute just to describe all the ways that rent control is illegal, let alone you know, bad policy. Did you find that you were at least getting a little bit, a little bit better, a little bit slicker, you know, better at speaking in, in sound bites as you went along? Yeah. But as I've described elsewhere, like the opportunity for dishonesty doesn't, no one ever comes up to you and says, listen, we need you to say the exact opposite of what you think. And then at this next meeting you go to, we need you to just lie through your teeth and in reward for that, we're going to hand you a big bag of money. 
Like that's not how corruption enters into politics. Corruption enters into politics in this tiny, tiny fashion where every day you are disincentivized from saying the truth because people all around you are saying, listen, nobody in this room wants to hear about it. You know, what they, here's what they want to hear. They want to hear you say that you're going to protect union jobs or they want to hear that you are going to uh, that you are considering rent control. They don't want to hear that you're against it. They just want to hear that you're considering it, even if that's a lie. And those tiny, li- I mean, they, they, they're, they're very small, they're very expedient and white lies. You're just, they're mostly lies of omission. Just don't talk about the thing. But if you allow that kind of thinking in to your corpus, and you start walking into places and thinking like, well, what don't, what can't I say here? I mean, that is how the political voice gets honed. And pretty soon you're only saying the safest things, only saying things that, that are not going to bite you in the ass later. And you have introduced corruption into your system at that point. So that later on down the road, when somebody comes up to you and says, Listen, the entire U.S. government is being controlled by an alien uh, super government that lives under the North Pole in a special base, but you can't tell anybody. By that point, you've been lying your whole career, and you go, oh, sure, of course, right. I'm, that's, I'm not, I'm not, it's not that I'm lying, I'm just not telling people about it. And so for me, who has like, spent my whole adult life trying to be as candid as I could, about myself, as candid in my own work as I could be. Um, and partly that was candor, that was candor as a defense mechanism in the sense that if everybody knows everything about you, then you're not vulnerable. You're not vulnerable to blackmail, you're not vulnerable to scorn because you've already said it about yourself. Nobody can point a finger at you and call you out for your secrets. And so my whole life I've been as candid as I could be about my, my failings and weaknesses. And so to suddenly be in a situation where every day I was unable to be candid, not, not, I never allowed myself to, to actually embrace a lie, but even being constrained in my ability to just absolutely speak candidly was a was a corruption that I felt very personally, and it, and it hurt. Um, you also, I mean, it's a, it's also very clear from your show that you're somebody who sort of uh, talks his way through problems. You know, that you that, that, yeah. that, that you work through it as as the words are, are coming out of your mouth, which is something that can obviously be uh, hugely problematic, both you know on, on on the campaign trail, but also the fact that you've got this backlog of what like 200 or so episodes of the show of you working through these really big ideas. Yeah, you 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 you, th- you throw them out there and and I mean uh, whether it was a uh, part of my self-invention or or just intrinsic to my personality, but I'm not somebody that apologizes for an idea that he just had before I even say it. You know, there are plenty of people that are like 
have an idea and and it and it scares them or it uh, or they you know they they immediately set about trying to corral it and domesticate it and a lot of times you know an idea occurs to me and I and I I don't just say it I say it with I try to put conviction behind it. <laughs> Well, what does this idea sound like if somebody says it with conviction? Um, and, you know, and a lot of times I say things that even as I'm saying them, I'm kind of hearing it aloud and going, huh, that doesn't, that doesn't really fly. You know, like if you, if you connect it to the next logical, you know, yeah. the next logical jump from that, and then you're in a place where, no, it's, it's, it's no good, you know, and that's how you, that's how you work stuff out, right? I mean, if you. But most people, for most people, that's kind of an internal process. Well, no, I don't think most people engage in that process mm-hmm. um, at all. I think most people. I mean, if you, if you, if you run the numbers on any ideology, right? If you say like, here's Marxism, let's talk about it. It doesn't take long before you. And, and it's always in the point at which Marxism rubs up against somebody who doesn't want to practice Marxism, where you say, oh, Marxism works great as long as everybody practices it. And as soon as one person doesn't want to, then you have a choice. You either have to force that person to practice it, or you have to acknowledge that this ideology isn't complete, right? And that's the problem with all ideologies. That's, that's where we get that's why libertarianism sounds so great to libertarian libertarians because they haven't they haven't spoken the idea aloud and followed it to followed it down the road to encountering somebody who's like well great but i don't i don't practice that and then you you're right into totalitarianism in every case you know the, the what's terrible and messy about democracy is that you have to let everybody do their thing and there still has to be some common some common ground where where all these different ideologies have some thread of commonality that allows them to all work simultaneously and that that requires that you that you throw ideas at the wall and say what would happen if we you know what would happen if we controlled the economy what would happen if we if we if we had a state religion what would happen you know and throw it out there and see what see what works and what doesn't and I don't I think you know the reason ideologies are successful is that they are complete systems within an enclosure and they require that people not throw the idea up and see see what sticks so where 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 are you now with regards to I guess potentially doing this in the future you know the one of the big things that I figured out right away was that I was entering in an ongoing. Hmm. I was entering into a world, uh, into entering into a film that was already in progress, mm-hmm. and everybody, all the, the democratic activists, all the, um, all the socialists, all the unions, all the chamber of commerce people, everybody already had a dog in the race. And the way that they assimilated me or tried to assimilate me was by saying, hey, welcome to the party. Uh, You're a very charming guy and you have um, 
a good voice and good haircut, you could really do this. You could really make it here, son. Um, your ideas or whatever, fine. That's good. I mean, you know, we don't really need the candidate to have ideas of his own. Uh, but that's fine that you have some ideas or whatever. Keep them to yourself for the most part. Um, the ideas that we're looking for, we've already decided what they are. Here are the Democratic Party ideas. Here are the Socialist Party ideas. Here are the platforms of the unions and the chambers and the various vested groups. And so really what we want is somebody who can put together, fashion a, through the, from this grab bag of ideas, a workable ideology that represents the coalition that's necessary to get elected. Mm -hmm. So your big ideas about not just gondolas, but about culture or whatever, it's not really important but what is nice is that you're a good speaker you are you are a good dresser you have good hair i heard that so much good hair and so what they immediately said was you're probably going to lose this first race that's not that big of a deal everybody loses their first race yeah. what we're really interested in is are you going to stick around are you going to keep are you going to join the team hmm. Now that you've run and lost, you know, the next thing that you do is you endorse yeah. somebody, then you start coming to these meetings, you start you get to know all the people better, they get to know you better, so they trust you more. And then the next time you run, you'll have been doing the thing that all your opponents were already doing, which is running for office all the time. And by the time you declare that you're running next time, you'll have, you'll know who's in your camp and who's not, and you'll be ready to go. And I was so shocked the first several times I heard that because I was like, what are you talking about? I'm running for office right now. I'm working 18 hours a day to learn all this stuff and to do a good job and to get up to speed. And you're telling me that this is just a trial run and that I'm going to do this two years from now and then if I lose then I'm going to do it two more year, two years after that and keep doing it until I win and they're like yep that's exactly right that is precisely the way that this situation or the way that this system is designed and um, it was a shock it was a shocker uh, the, uh, more than anything that was a shock to me that and and now that shock is wearing off and I start to see that of course that is how any group of people wants to sort of assimilate newcomers in a sense you're 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 beaten down by the system well or i mean whenever a band comes along that is like totally new novel kind of mm -hmm. sound, novel kind of band when they're starting out, there are a lot of people that are like, hey, you know, you guys, uh, you guys are great, but all you need to do is, you know, sure. take, take a picture standing up against a brick wall smoking cigarettes because that's what bands do. And the rare band that makes it through that with their, with their uniqueness intact, then everybody jumps on board and the, and the idea of what a band is changes for a little bit and everybody's like wow now bands wear leather jackets who would have thought of that you know or vampire weekend now bands wear 
pink sweaters knitted around their necks. And it's like, well, yeah, that's not actually new. Like the talking heads did that. Um, there's really nothing new under the sun. But immediately what happens is those bands, even the most radical, offbeat, crazy, cool bands, they get a manager, they get a lawyer, they get a agent, and they are they are corralled and domesticated and defanged and put into the music business and they become either a successful component of the music business or the music business decides that they can't work with them and no matter how interesting they are they they get bumped you know there's no there are very few like Prince is an example of somebody who continues to be at war with the music business, mm -hmm. but 90% of what Prince does is in accordance with normal practices. You know, he goes on tour, he collects money, he sells records, he, he wears fancy costumes, he plays stadiums. There's a lighting guy and there's a monitor guy and there's a guitar tech, you know, like he's not, he's not, reinventing the wheel he's just arguing with people at Warner Brothers but he's the, an example of somebody that we think of as like no he's a completely independent spirit or something I mean so any group that you try to join as an outsider wants to make you an insider right away and if you don't become an insider then you won't you're not it's not gonna you don't have a, you don't have a chance right and um and I felt very, I felt very alien there, uh, in that world. Not not that people weren't friendly, and not that they didn't, not that they didn't ultimately want to support me. But it is not a world where the candidate is the idea generator, and that I guess, sh again, should not have been a surprise to me, because look at the candidates, and I think that was the thing that we. That was the thing that I hoped to reform, right? Like, how could, how is Rick Perry a successful politician? He's like a very dumb person, mm -hmm. but he's got great hair. Why, why don't smart people, uh, why aren't they candidates? And it just, it sounds so, it sounds so ridiculous to say it now. Um, but the reason is that the, yeah, the the platforms, the policy is already written, written by the operatives, and the candidate is just um, is just the receiver. Yeah, the, he, the he carries he carries the ball into the end zone. Yeah, with with you know, hopefully some sense of conviction at the very least. Uh, that is not strictly necessary. The candidate needs to be able to portray conviction. But actual conviction is, again, sort of like actual ideas. It's somewhat superfluous. If you can portray conviction, then you can be a success. But the, the, the question, and obviously it's, it's early on, but um, you know, the qu question is, and I guess it's two years out at this point, but is this something that's still potentially on the table for you? I... I There, 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 I'm sure there are people who run for office and maybe they don't take on as big a, a 
a job as Seattle City Council person, which is actually, you know, I, again, my lack of knowledge is embarrassing now. At the time that I started running, I felt like I had a pretty good knowledge. <laughs> of all the people I knew, I was, uh, I was very politically engaged at the level of ideas. What I did not understand was the, well, I was not engaged at the level of operations. And I think the, the, the embarrassment or my, my naivete, my, the embarrassment of my naivete, the embarrassment about my naivete is, is I think primarily that I didn't realize that it's, that the job itself is almost a hundred percent operations. Mm -hmm. And that's the shocker to me. But I thought that Seattle city council was, you know, I thought that the, that the political jobs got more important as they got, as they trended toward bigger entities, mm -hmm. right? So the mayor of Seattle was a smaller job in my imagination <laughs> than a state legislator mm -hmm. who was operating at the state level in a legislative body. The Seattle mayor was an administrator of a town, but to work at the state legislature, you would be part of this operating the state. Well, that's laughable to me now. This, the mayor of a city of Seattle is an enormous job, an incredibly important job, a powerful job, and a desirable job for a politician. Because you get to go home to your own bed every night. You are in charge of every aspect of, of, uh, of the operations of a, of a city, which is you know, too many operations to name. Whereas a state legislator, that's really a part-time job. You go to the state capitol periodically and you deliberate with a bunch of hicks and dingalings. You have no real power outside of, of a coalition. You're paid a token amount. And you know, to, to be a state legislator is really an entry-level job. And to be a mayor is a, is a, uh, you know, the culmination of a career. Mm -hmm. So running for Seattle City Council, which actually is an enormous job, the Seattle City Council people earn one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, whereas uh, somebody on the Washington State Legislature earns twenty eight thousand dollars a year or something. Um, and I don't think if you went to uh, the U.S. House of Representatives, you would make much more than one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. I don't know how much they make, but it's a, it's somewhat equivalent. But to be in the U.S. House of Representatives, you would have to fly back and forth to Washington D.C. You'd have to keep some kind of apartment in Washington. Um, in a lot of respects, it's a much worse job. So. In answer to your question, like I'm sure there is somebody who runs for office the first time, and they run for, uh, you know, director of the county water board out in out in the country, and everybody in the everybody in the county knows who they are because their dad was from there, and and um, you and 
he got famous because he was a rodeo star or something like that. And he ran for county water board and he didn't really have a challenger. And his first campaign for office was fun and invigorating and life affirming. And through that process, then he ran again. He was the incumbent and he won a second time. And then he decided to run for county, uh, county council. And he had some experience behind him and his challenger turned out uh, you know was involved in a dog fighting ring and I mean there are probably plenty of people that end up getting elected to public office and by the time they run for a run for something substantial they're already vested and they have and they feel like it's fun for them and good I bit off a lot in running for Seattle City Council my first ever try and um, I'm still drawing my conclusions hmm. from that you seem at least slightly relieved <laughs> well in the in in the sense of relief in in the in the sense that I am actually physically relieved of a tremendous <laughs> amount of anxiety and and uh, and panic. Um, I am. I'm greatly relieved. It's no fun to lose. Yeah. Particularly not in a in a very visible race, and particularly not lose when you feel like you're. I, it, it would be one thing if um, if the other candidates, not just in my own race, but across the board in the Seattle City Council race, you know, it would it would have been one thing if I'd showed up and had just been outgunned by intellectuals, right? Where everybody else was a Rhodes Scholar and they were just hitting me with some space science that I couldn't match. Because that's the world that 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 is the standard of achievement of our world, right? The the arts and the the world of letters. You're impressed by somebody's sense of humor or by their ability to connect wide ranging ideas in podcasting, right? Your somebody's ability to talk for an hour mm-hmm. and remain interesting. Like these are all maybe harder to quantify skills, but real versus and hair versus hair right or and, and and what so what was disappointing was that I got I was beaten in the Seattle City Council race and a lot of really smart people also lost in other races for other seats and almost universally the winners were good at playing hmm. good at the uh, technical aspects of of collecting votes, right? Of putting together enough endorsements and coalitions of people and telling them what they wanted to hear and getting votes. And none of them, none of the people that made it through were the, at any level of the city council race, were what you would describe as like the, the most compelling Mm -hmm. people, right? But they were the best politicians. And in a lot of ways, in some cases, they were truly great politicians and I have a tremendous admiration for them. 
I just see now that it is a that it is a talent. It's a the the job description of being a good politician is not what I thought it was. Mm. It's um, and that is the that's the biggest education for me. And so it it causes me to say like, all right, then the people that or then the kind of person that I am, the kind of contribution that I want to make to civic life and to American life and the the job I feel put here to do is not that job. It's um, it's at the level of talking about talking about ideas and and generating them and and toying with them and taking the hit for the bad ones and really pressing on with the good ones and and having a healthy sense of humor about it all and none of those are really advantages hmm. at least in my experience for a candidate um, we still need all that in public life and that all needs to be in the world of ideas we're considering but the but the but the way we run people for office and the expectation we have of them and the way the system is designed, it's always going to favor um, a, a, a different set of skills than that. When, when you look at uh, your, your, your dad, it, I mean, was, was he a good politician or is that just a case of it being a different time? It was a different time, but he was a terrible politician. And, and he, he knew it. He knew it and... You know, my uncle Jack was mayor of Anchorage mm-hmm. in the '70s, and when I said I was running for city council, he called me and said, "Oh my God, don't do that!" And I said, "What do you mean?" And he was like, "Oh no, no, no! It's terrible. You'll hate it." And I and my mom said, "You're going to hate this," <laughs> and I ignored them again because I didn't understand what, what I was doing. Uh, and the people close to me that did understand what I was doing. You know they weren't able to articulate to me, and I, I, I guess it never it never comes up in conversation that that um, because because the world of ideas orbits around the political world, and we don't do a very we're not very effective in understanding that those that those worlds are divorced from one another, and that policy. And, and um, I mean, if we want to enact good ideas, there are a lot better ways to do it than mm. to pass laws. And the world of laws has expanded, the world of laws and lawmakers has expanded to fill all of the space of in our imaginations of how we get things done how we improve our lives how we change um how we change things we need to pass laws we need different laws we need to change the laws that's how we imagine uh accomplishing change but really laws are the least effective way in most cases of affecting change um and and we we don't have enough talk about that that 
in our culture that laws are very important and we should limit what they are and we they should when we should recognize that they have a limited effectiveness in most cases and when they can be effective and are effective we should really focus our attention on those situations but a lot of what we ask laws and lawmakers to do really isn't their realm and we should invest ourselves in other institutions and other methods of achieving that and i think we see that now the social justice movement on twitter mm -hmm. is talking less about laws and more about using the power of collective um in a lot of ways collective shame but just in terms of a, an unwillingness to accept the status quo and a an insistence that people an insistence that people reflect a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and that's an example of a kind of crowd-driven social change that isn't, that's not based in the world, really, of laws. We, we're, we're resisting some bad law, but mostly we're resisting bad precedent and bad culture. And we're doing it, you know, and we're doing it with culture. But... But still, we, 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 we focus so much attention on law and lawmakers because they fill that, they fulfill that need for us that someone's in charge and someone can, um, someone can make change from authority. They can force us to, they can force the bad people to change. Nobody wants government to force us to change, me personally. If the government tries to force me to change, I resist it. But I definitely want government to make other people, bad people, change. Um, and it's it's a it's a mentality, I think, a lazy mentality, um, because it's much easier to pass a law than it is to convince somebody to make that change it on their own. There you go, John Roderick. Very special bonus episode of R.A.Y.L. Uh, bonus because, as, as everybody who's, who's listened to the show before knows, one of the, the big principles of R.A.Y.L. is that we do all of these all of these episodes in person. I think that's a you know a pretty pretty important part. Just sort of sitting down with somebody and 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 you know, breathing in the, the the live atmosphere and looking at somebody in the eyes. Uh, but I I really wanted to catch up with John. It, it had been a while since I had uh, uh, spoken to him at least. Spoken to him outside of, uh, of email and, and, and Twitter exchanges, uh, and and you know the the city council vote had had the primaries had just happened, so I, I really really want to speak to him about about that. Uh, that was a couple of weeks ago. You know, I wanted to, to wait a little while for, for as as he says at the top of the interview for, for the you know the dust to settle, which well, is all the better. You know, it's nice it's it's nice at least taking like a couple steps away from it and, and being able to. To really, really reflect on it, which he was obviously uh, quite, quite capable of, of, of doing there. Uh, so, uh, bonus episode. If you are enjoying these bonus episodes, you know I know that they're kind of a little bit out, out of line with what, what we usually do. But if, if you have been enjoying them, uh, please, please let me know. Send us, uh, send us some feedback. 
rylcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also talk to us over on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group. Like us over there. Uh, follow us on Tumblr. It's rylcast.tumblr.com. Uh, rate us on iTunes or wherever it is that you, you download your podcasts. Uh, thanks so much to John for, for carving out uh, some of his, his schedule there. You know, when I... When I first proposed the episode, I said, hey, let's do a, a quick conversation, which, you know, in my mind was going to be 10 or 15 minutes, but I, I think I knew in my heart of hearts that uh, sitting down with that brought up nothing, nothing quite lasts 10 or 15 minutes. This is, you know, sort of what, what we got into there, and, and I think, you know, sort of what he was, what, what, what he was kind of uh, running up against in the campaign was um, the idea of nuance. Um, the idea of you know, kind of, kind of, uh, I guess, meandering around the, the, the point from the standpoint of you know, not just not just meeting people, talking points, but uh, makes for makes for a hell of a hell of a podcast. Um, so you know, I, I wish him a lot of luck in the future. I think, and and I do think that he's really kind of found his place. You know, this this sort of second career that, that he's found for himself outside of the, outside of the, the long winters of um, yeah, just uh, kind of being a, a gadfly and really you know, uh, use, using this medium to stretch out his legs and, and to, to talk about these really fascinating ideas he has. So thanks so much to him for taking the time. Uh, I, thanks to Brian because I always thank Brian at the end of the show even though I edited this and the only reason that I mentioned that I edited this is because if there were any sort of uh, editing problems so the music sounded bad that's that's 100 100% on me uh, thanks everyone for taking the time thanks for thanks for listening to the show we, we will be back in uh, actually just just a few days with another episode of RAYL